This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be Swedish? The daughter of a North African father and a white French mother. In today's episode, Sarah is going to tell us what it was like growing up as a child and a teenager in Stockholm as a person of color. She's also going to be sharing with us some stories from her dating life and her struggles of finding someone who respects her and sees her for who she is. I'm Fumi, this is Hashtag Our Racism, and this is the story of Sarah. My mother is from France and my father is from North Africa. And I grew up in a suburb of Stockholm and uh, I have now moved to the city and basically lived in Sweden my whole life. I went to school here, university, and I am now working here. I'm as Swedish as you can get. Growing up, Sarah experienced a number of instances where she felt excluded because of the way she looked, illustrating how appearance is used as a marker for belonging. One of her most vivid memories happened when she was just six years old. I was a child back then. I was in a choir. And this was actually a choir in the suburb where I grew up. And in Sweden, we have this tradition called Santa Lucia. So St. Lucie, we usually don't celebrate saints in Sweden ever, but St. Lucie is one of them, uh, 13th of December. And what is interesting about this tradition is that St. Lucie, she is an Italian saint. But for some reason, we celebrate her here in Sweden. And you can actually find in books and in literature and religion that Lucia, which is then her real name, that she had dark hair because she was Italian. But because Sweden has pretty much appropriated that saint in their tradition, when you were a child, you would see Lucia depicted as a Swedish person, meaning she was blonde with blue eyes. So every year when we celebrate Santa Lucia, we have choirs singing, and in the middle, at the very front, you have Santa Lucia. And all around her, she has her, what we call tanur, so sort of like her maids following her, etc. And when I was in this choir and we were going to choose who was going to be Lucilla, and all the kids want to be Lucilla at the choir because you're in the center, center of attention, the whole celebration is about you. And our choir teacher would tell us to write our names on a piece of paper and put it in her shoe. And she would randomly pick a name and that person would be Lucilla. And I remember being super excited with all of my choir friends and we would all dribble our names on a piece of paper. And when I was about to put my name in her shoe, she stopped me and she said, you can't be Lucilla. And I was really young back then. I was six years old. But I remembered how sad I was. And I asked her why everyone else can be Lucilla. Why can't I be? And she told me, you are not blonde. 
So you cannot be our Lucia. And I was devastated. I, I was a kid. It felt like someone told me that I wasn't allowed to be on the playground with all the other kids. And I remember being really sad and going home that night to my mother, telling her that, can you please dye my hair blonde so I could be Lucilla? And this, some people listening to this might think that, oh, whatever, it was just a choir. That teacher was just being very conservative. But I think this actually illustrates a bigger problem because, I mean, today there's all these discussions about, for example, could James Bond be played by an Afro-American man? And people would say that it's scandalous, but there was no issues with a white Caucasian man playing Gandhi, for example. And in this case, I mean... As a very young child, I was told that because of my looks, I couldn't be part of a tradition that is essential to a country that I grew up in. And what is even more crazy is that growing up, I learned that Lucilla was Italian. She had black hair. She wasn't blonde, but I was still excluded from it. And, you know, hearing that when you're a child, it's an age where you build your perception of the world, of what is wrong and what is right. And for the longest time, I really was ashamed of me not having looks that could blend in with the average Swede. So, yeah, that was really something that uh, stuck with me until I found out that Lucilla was Italian, and I realized that my choir teacher was just being really stupid. As Sarah entered her adolescence and became more vocal, she says she often clashed at school with her teachers because they would constantly deny her of her Swedishness and, instead, essentialized her as a representative of a certain community, othering her and denying her individuality. We had a Swedish lesson, you know, like you know, Swedish literature, etc., so we were talking about how religion was affecting literature, especially Christianity. And our teacher was obviously a Christian. And every time she would mention Islam, she would say that she had no idea because she didn't know anything about Islam. And she would always say, Sarah, what is your point of view? Could you explain? And I would keep telling her, I think I told her maybe five, six times in one hour, that miss, I am not religious. I don't know what you're talking about. She would just pretty much be like, oh, yeah, 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 sure. And then 10 minutes later, ask me again, oh, Sarah, in Islam, how is it? I remember getting pretty annoyed at it. And there would be some of my classmates who would be annoyed with me for being annoyed, saying that, oh, Sarah, don't you understand? She just doesn't know. She's not being judgmental or racist. And I would tell them that, but I've said several times over and over again that I am not religious. She is solely basing her choice to direct those questions at me out of my looks, out of my ethnicity. And she is not listening to what I have to say. And I think that that was a major thing, major factor 
that affected me not feeling like I belonged because I wasn't allowed to be the person I wanted to be. I could solely be Sarah, the exotic girl from North Africa that is religious, although she she says she isn't, that loves to eat certain type of food, although she says she doesn't, that love a certain type of music, although she says she doesn't. And that, I think, was something that I grew a very large frustration about growing up. Another example I had was when we were talking about these Swedish holidays we had. And one of them is Midsummer. One of the teachers then would say, oh, it would be interesting to hear what holidays you have in other cultures. And would turn to me again and say, so Sarah, tell us about the holidays in your culture. And I would look at him and be like, I'm born and raised here. The the holidays that are here are mine as well. I do celebrate Midsummer and I do celebrate Christmas the Swedish way by watching the typical cartoon we have at three o'clock on Channel One and etc, etc. And I remember telling the teacher that I didn't understand the question and he would... He, he actually ended up being mad at me, saying that I was disturbing the class and that I was being arrogant for not wanting to participate. And I was really, I, I was a teenager, you know, I wasn't a young child. I was a teenager back in the days. And I would tell him that I do understand the question. I am old enough to understand also why you would ask that question to me. And I am here replying that I, can, I, I cannot help you in whatever you want. We actually got it as a assign, an assignment to write about a holiday in our culture. So I decided to write about our 1st of May celebration here. And the teacher would take me to the side and tell me that, but I wanted you to write something about your culture. And I told him, but this is my culture. And I, and this is, you know, and I would have some classmates, obviously not my friends, uh, (laughs) who would also grow frustrated with me and be like, why are you so ashamed of your culture? And I kept telling them, I am not ashamed. I am telling you that this is also my culture. I do not celebrate other holidays. Now, if you would tell me to write maybe about a dish that my mother would cook that is not Swedish, that I could do. But this is my culture. And I think that this is something that at least today is a very large topic when you speak about integration of immigrants in society. When people say that, oh, they don't want to integrate, they don't want to adapt to our culture, to our traditions. And... I think that an aspect that is very often forgotten is that, oh, we do want, some of us, or actually a lot of us do want to integrate, but we're not allowed to because we're either getting laughed at or people uh, will judge us or people will say that we deny our own culture or simply deny us the right of claiming this to be our culture. These instances were not confined to school. Sarah vividly remembers a horrible episode at the hairdresser when she was 15 years old. 
I went to a hairdresser. I had gone to the same salon before once and I was really happy about it. Uh, so I went back and this girl that took me on saw my hair and I have North African hair. So I have big frizzy hair. It's, it's really, it takes a lot of time to, uh, to take care of. And when I sat down in, in the chair, she would just look at my hair and she would sigh and she would make these awful remarks being like, oh my God, why did I get hair like yours? I'm going to miss my break. This is going to take forever. I hate cutting hair like this. Why can't you have normal hair? And I was like, what does she mean with normal hair? I was born with this hair. I had had this hair my whole life. My mother used to braid it and make these little updos for me. For me, that was normal. Now I got it. It was, it was different from others. But all of a sudden, I had this professional person who had been working with hair suddenly telling me that, you know what, your hair is not normal. And she had no clue of how to handle it. She made an awful mess and uh, she was cutting it and she kept making these remarks telling me like oh my god this is like a lion's mane it is never ending and it's so dry you know your hair looks like a broomstick etc etc I was 15 you know how vulnerable you are as a 15 year old <laughs> and someone telling you all of that and I was mortified. I was mortified. And when we were done, she had done an awful job. The girl right after me came and she had this thin, straight, beautiful and very easy to handle Scandinavian hair. And when she came, the hairdresser was like, ah, oh, yes, someone with normal hair. And I felt, I mean, I cried afterwards because, you know, when you're a 15-year-old girl already trying to define yourself, you know, having someone saying that your hair is a pain in the ass and it is not normal and that it's ruining her break, this woman even managed to cut her own freaking finger in my hair because according to her, my hair was so big and so thick, she couldn't see anything. So she cut her finger in my hair. It's a crazy story. And there was like blood, a lot of blood coming out from her hand. And she would just scream at me and tell me, look what you made me do. And I was like, I did nothing. <laughs> I was just born this way. I felt really, really bad about it. Really bad. And I mean, hair, it's, it's, it's very debated in this whole racism debate that we have. And I think it's amazing how especially African-American women are uh, advocating for their right to have the hair that they're born with, because some schools are now forbidding having any kind of Afro hairdo. And, you know, when you go to job interviews, they're saying that, oh, if you have an Afro, you are not considered as a serious applicant, which is insane. But I remember even, you know, watching cartoons as a child, or even, you know, one of my absolute favorite movies, A Princess Diary when Anne Hathaway has this really curly, frizzy hair. And that's when she's considered an ugly duckling. And she becomes a princess. They straighten her hair. And I mean, 
her really frizzy hair. That's what I had. That was my natural hair. And that was classified as ugly. In cartoons, when people's hairs would be ruined, even in Friends, I love Friends, but when Monica has bad hair and they all laugh at her, she has big frizzy hair. And that's what we all had. And it's those things that make you feel like what you have, what you're born with, which actually comes from me being North African, is considered ugly. People will laugh at that. It is not considered normal. People like hairdressers will not want to have you as a client. And I think that that is one of the cornerstones of racism, that these everyday services such as TV or hairdressers or hair products or whatnot just is not not only not adapted to us, but it is actively depicting us as something negative, as something burdensome. Sarah says that despite being painful, these experiences helped her to grow as a person, particularly with regards to other people's opinions regarding her looks or Swedish identity. But there's something that she finds particularly difficult to this day. Dating. She shares a story that happened with her ex-boyfriend. I hadn't introduced him to my parents yet because I'm a, I'm a very private person. I just, I don't feel comfortable introducing someone I haven't dated very long because God knows the risk is big that it doesn't last. And uh, I just, it had been a couple of months and I hadn't introduced him because I didn't know if him and I were even serious, to be honest. And he asked me, like, have you told your parents about me? And I said, no, not yet. And he, his conclusion that he told me right there and then was, ah, is it because your father does not approve of you meeting with boys, although you're not married yet? And I was really shocked by that. And I told him, no, it's because I don't even know if what we have is serious. And I told him, if I were to be blonde and blue-eyed, would you have thought the same thing, that I wouldn't have introduced you to my parents because of my father? And he was very open about, no, I just assumed that because, you know, your father is North African. And I, and I told him, don't you see the problem in that? And he really didn't. And he was claiming curiosity and just ignorance. And I told him, no, you're being judgmental. You're borderline racist right here. Assuming that my father is an extremely conservative, traditional man solely because of the country he immigrated from. And he really couldn't see that. And I think that that is one of the most subtle ways <laughs> that I experienced racism these subtle racist remarks also happen quite often when I am dating guys. That when I would tell them about my ethnicity, they would light up, which is great, I guess. But then they would say something like, wow, I have never been with a girl like you. We're not, I'm not telling them anything about me or something. I just told them my ethnicity and maybe I met them five minutes ago. So they are not in awe of how intelligent I am or anything. And I 
very often ask them, what do you mean? And they proudly list all the ethnicities that they have been with. They're like, oh, I've been with a girl from Puerto Rico. I've been with a girl from Algeria. I've been with a girl from Egypt. I've been with a girl from India, but never with a girl like you. And this thing where they consider you as some sort of exotic fruit that they need to tick off their bucket list is just, you feel pretty objectified. It kind of kills your ego because all of a sudden you found yourself thinking, oh, is this guy with me right now because he thinks I am genuinely interesting or is it so he can add another notch on his belt like those scraping maps you have when you travel? Can he now scrape off this country because he's been with a girl from this country? And once again, I, I, I'm usually very vocal about my opinions and I do tell them that that is not okay, what you just said. And they go like, why are you taking this the wrong way? I meant it as a compliment. I said, but I didn't ask to become representative of an entire ethnicity for you to be able to cross it off your bucket list. I am just trying to date you and find someone who's genuinely interested in who I am as a person, not what I represent. This exotification, I think I saw that it's a word. That is one of the very many ways where subtle racism plays in. Sarah says she didn't always know that many of the experiences she went through in her early life were manifestations of racism until she started speaking to people who experienced similar experiences and lived realities as her. I think it was when I started speaking to other friends that had the same experiences as me. I think that I realized it when... I was talking about it with a friend of mine. She's Persian. And I didn't speak about it as something negative because back then I didn't know it was negative. But then she would tell me her story as well. And she didn't see that something negative either. But when she all of a sudden told it from her perspective, I realized like, wow, that is actually messed up what you experienced. And that's when I was like, oh, wait, hold on. I experienced the same thing. What we both experienced was messed up. I think that's when I started realizing it. And also, as I grew older and I realized that, you know, you don't have to please everyone. And I started realizing that, you know what? I don't like what you're just saying and I am entitled to not like it. And I think, you know, through social media, mostly when, you know, social media has opened up so many different platforms where you can you get so much more impressions now than you did as a child where the only places you got your information from was home school and tv and now you have social media you have all these diversified platforms and groups coming together and i think that's when i realized you know also when traveling i um i could see how different people like their different opinions of me and seeing uh, how they were treated maybe in other countries compared to Sweden. So I really think that it was when exchanging my thoughts and experiences with other people that were in the same seat as I was, that's when it came. And I started doing that in my late teens when I also started daring to speak my voice. 
Sarah says that talking to people in Sweden about racialization, racism, and the harm done is difficult. I would say that Sweden, compared to other countries, such as maybe France or Switzerland or even Austria when I traveled there, Sweden is very much accepting. It is. But I think it is such a politically correct country that you don't really speak about racism. It's There's a very big denial when it comes to that because people are like, no, we are one of the countries in Europe that accept most immigrants and uh, we are always super open and we have a very generous socialist politic and economy. And it is true. It truly is. But that doesn't prevent from people on a daily basis when it comes to social interaction, basic interaction, not realizing that certain things are actually racist, even in the most subtle form. And I have met people who are like, oh, you're not allowed to even distinguish between ethnicity, although there is different ethnicities, because then people will tell you that you're racist. And I try to tell them, no, no, That's not what it is about. Of course you can distinguish between ethnicities. We're not just all of us one in a single ethnicity. I'm just saying that some remarks are just very inappropriate and show how judgmental you are and that you should really change your way of thinking when it comes to those. I think that when you speak about racism, a lot of times when I try to talk about it to people who maybe wouldn't be victims of racism because they have the white Caucasian look, they would very often be frustrated and say that, oh, I am always being called a racist when I am just trying to be curious or I maybe don't know. And what I'm trying to explain to those people is that there's a very thin line between curiosity and judgmental. And when you're judgmental, that's when you are bordering being racist. And usually what I tell them, the difference between being curious and being judgmental is about how open you are. So for example, I can understand that seeing me the way I look, because I am not blonde and I am not blue-eyed, you would automatically understand that I am not ethnically 100% Swedish. And that is completely normal. So a lot of times when I would get the first time the question, where are you from? I can understand that. Although I do speak perfectly Swedish, so it is a pretty weird question to ask. But I can, I can, I can see why people would ask that. So when I would tell them that I am from Stockholm, and then the follow-up answer or question you get is so important. And I think that's, not, that's what people don't realize. Because if they say, oh, okay, got it, but... Do you have maybe parents that are not from Sweden because you're dark? That I understand. Then you're curious. But if they would instead tell you, no, but where are you really from? And you'd be surprised how many people would actually say that. Where are you really from? And that's when judgmental aspect comes in. Because you are not listening to what the other person is telling you. You have made up your mind solely from their looks. You don't know anything about them and you are putting them in a certain category and you don't care about what they have to say. So that I think is something that a lot of people who are not victim of racism don't, re- don't realize. 
Sarah has the following to say regarding what people need to do to become anti-racist. I think having an open mind, being able to reconsider your own ideas and beliefs. Now, of course, you have your core values, your core thoughts, and you should stick to them. But if you are genuinely thinking that, you know, you want to fight racism, you want to side with the people that are victims of racism, you need maybe to challenge your own beliefs and really be open about what can be considered racist and what cannot be considered racist. What you may have thought before to be an innocent compliment can actually be a pretty douchey racist remark. And also something that is very important, I think, being anti-racist is something active. It's not passive. So it's not enough to simply be like, oh, okay, I will just stop saying to a woman that she is exotic. I think you need to actively say that. If I ever hear a friend of mine describing a girl or boy as exotic, I will tell that friend that, oof, you can't use that word. What does it mean? Why are you saying that? You can find more information about the history of Santa Lucia Sarah referred to in this episode, as well as other articles, books, and videos she recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find a transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and Hashtag Our Racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Sarah for her time and energy in reliving for us some of her painful memories and sharing with us important reflections on this issue.